This podcast is brought to you by Airbyte, the product and growth studio available at startup prices. If you're struggling with designing, building, or growing your vision, Airbyte may be the perfect partner. Learn more at airbyte.co.uk. Airbyte, building digital products with growth in mind. I'm still not very good at doing nothing. I actually forced myself to do nothing, so I went to, to stay in a Buddhist uh, temple with monks. And basically, you only had the opportunity to talk once a day for half an hour, and that was it. I tell you about James, I was, um, I was too young. I did not enjoy that journey. I think I need to do it again at some point. But it, it taught me so many lessons. It's not the life I could live, but it was definitely an eye-opening experience, for sure. From Airbyte, this is Growth in Mind, a podcast about the stories behind the high-growth startups and small businesses that are starting to make waves in the world. I, James Farnfield, speak with the founders and entrepreneurs about their personal and professional lives and how they intertwine to lead to building successful businesses today and how growth has been a part of who they are or who they have become. On today's episode, we have Julia Kessler from Nixon Kicks, an all-natural, low in calories, vegan, sparkling drinks company with flavors like sparkling mango ginger, sparkling blood orange turmeric, and sparkling cucumber mint. Since 2014, alongside co-founder Kirsten Robinson, Julia has built Nicks and Kicks to sell 5 million products sold in over 7,500 distribution points, and they aren't stopping there. Have you ever been in a situation where you're in a coffee shop, train station, bus stop, or even an airport, and you meet someone and get chatting? You're friendly, you get to know them, maybe even exchange numbers, maybe you even stay in touch loosely. You go through that same train station time and time again, thinking you'll meet them once more. Julia Kessler had this experience with her friend turned co-founder, Kirsten Robinson. I don't want to go into too much detail now, as you have to hear it to believe it from Julia. Growing up, Julia, a native to Germany, or more specifically East Germany, had to battle through many challenges throughout her life, breaking through societal norms and expectations on the windy road to where she is today. So Julia, tell me about your childhood. Uh, what was it like growing up? What was it like growing up? So I actually, I, I grew up um, for the early part of my life in East Germany, behind the behind wall. Um, and so I grew up in the communism part of, of Germany before the wall came down. And that was an interesting experience in itself because obviously there was um, quite a lot of restrictions at the time, but, but equally there was quite a real sense of community. And, and then obviously I, you know, I was quite young, I was six years old when the revolt did come down. And there was a really crazy change happening um, at that time in, in East Germany because a lot of people have actually lost their jobs or you know, things have significantly changed. And, and actually people who grew up in that part of the world, they, they had to be quite entrepreneurial because in, in East Germany, people were giving a job and you've sort of done that job for the rest of your life. And uh, there was no unemployment rate. And obviously people had to suddenly be faced with unemployment. They had to re-educate. They had to learn new skills. And, and that is what happened to my to my family. So my family, they, they at the time, they had a, a, a shop. like a, I guess you would call that a corner shop now. 
um, and the better was focused on um, high quality uh, spirits and wine and tobacco and and then they had to completely redevelop themselves from scratch again so so yeah so that was a really interesting time and and yeah that was how I was growing up initially awesome so your parents owned their own shop um was that together My grandparents, yeah oh, so your so your grandparents um what was it like being around y- your family who owned their own business yeah, it was, I mean, um, I actually had a chat with my grandma recently about that. It was, um, you sort of slotted in as a child, you know, you slotted in around their schedule um, as opposed to, um, you know, they making the time available according to the children's life. The children had to be <laughs> slotted in around around timing. Uh, they were available, right? So they... Obviously, they were extremely busy, and um, I met my mom. She works in a, in a hospital, so she has to do a lot of shift work, and and you sort of get get slotted around. And I, and I guess what that, what that does when you're growing up, it makes you very um, resourceful in how to you know how to cope with your own time. Um, you're really flexible because obviously you, you know I I was in, in different locations on a, a lot of times and. And had to, you know, learn learn skills pretty fast because I, I had to sort of learn how to cook and make food for myself pretty early on. So I guess you you sort of um, become quite independent really quickly. And also you learn that because I, I spent a lot of time in that shop with my grandparents, I learned really quickly of what's important in the business. So. My, my grandparents were amazing at relationship building. Um, it's rela- relationships we still have standing now, and my grandma is now 81. And, and that most strong foundations and bonds you build with other shop owners and, and your customers, that is really what was important for, for their business. So when you were growing up, were you kind of running around the shop helping your grandparents? Did you get involved kind of on your weekends or your spare time? Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, um, it wasn't necessarily the fun part. It was parts where you, you know, had to clean things and had to make sure that, you know, the, the alignment on shelf of your different items is perfect. And, and obviously, it's little things you learn really early on, which is how to greet people properly and how you remember people's names. And so that's the bit which I had to learn quite quickly. Um, so, and that was the fun part, you know, obviously the cleaning part, maybe not so much fun, but the fun part was really getting to know all those amazing people who came through our doors all the time. Yeah, awesome. I'm, I'm sure you had many regulars who knew your grandparents' face, knew your face, just very, kind of very, as you say, community, community orientated. Exactly, exactly. But also sometimes, you know, backfires when you actually become a teenager and you might do certain things which you're not meant to do and then half of the town knows you that's not necessarily always a benefit yeah, um, for sure <laughs> and, um, yeah there, there are definitely lots of aspects which um which have sort of grounded me from early on in, in my life mm, for sure so moving into your teenage years you were going to school in east germany were you, were you a good student did you enjoy school oh no well i i was i wasn't the best i was quite average i think i I did enjoy certain subjects. I always enjoyed English um, 
and and actually like math and and physics and, and chemistry I wasn't very good in, in geography or or history history actually is not my my forte I don't really like history but but no, I've, I, I liked school, but what I did like mostly is, um, you know, the activities around school. So I played a lot of volleyball, I went horse riding, and and that vis-a-vis aspects I, I really enjoyed. Um, the, the thing about a school in in Germany, you in, in East Germany specifically, we had to learn English from a very early age. So um, we, we actually learned it from our first grade. And... Um, and yeah, that, that was actually really good because you really get to learn it properly for a very long time. So you're in your teenage years, you have kind of get towards the point where you're thinking about going to university and then somehow you end up in England. <laughs> somehow, yeah, so actually the, the other part which is uh, pretty common um, in, in East Germany is that you, um, you sort of become an adult when you're 14. Um, so that's when you... Not an adult, obviously you're an adult when you're 18, but you sort of get into a more adult life. And as part of that, um, you, because you obviously have a religious sort of, um, I'm not sure what it's called, communion or uh, where you enter the next phase of your life. And then obviously uh, when, like when you're an atheist, um, that's when you actually, um, uh, enter that part of your life differently and for us that was the opportunity to pick you know what you want to do when you're 14 and uh, I picked actually going to to England I went to Weymouth for four weeks and uh, stayed with a with a host family for four weeks and went to school um, Monday to Friday to to learn English better and, and that's actually where I fell in love with England. I, I absolutely loved it. I loved the English coastside. I loved Weymouth. I loved my trips to Stonehenge and London. And, and that always sort of uh, stuck with me because I had such a fantastic time. So then I actually, I, I actually never finished school. Um, I actually dropped out of school when I was 16. Um, and in Germany, when you, when you, when you're 16 and you, you know, you leave school, there's an opportunity that you can do an apprenticeship. So there's an apprenticeship scheme, which I guess is a little bit different to the one in the UK and Germany. That means you actually you go to school, but you also work at a company for work experience. It's a little bit like a hybrid of studying and a graduate scheme. So it's a mashup where you where you go for different departments and a company, but you also go to school. And, and that's what I've done. And then the company I, I worked for, um, called Infineon, it's a tech company that makes semiconductors and microchips. They, um, they actually have another program where they also send you to England for four weeks. So I, I actually went to, to London and I went to the European Business School in London for four weeks to study business English and, um, and that's when, when they told me about the fact that if you do an apprenticeship in, in Germany, you can actually come back to the UK, do one year of a higher national diploma, and then you can go straight into a bachelor degree. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, because obviously I, I didn't finish school. So in order to study in Germany, it would have meant I have to go back to school for at least another two years and then study for another four. 
and and actually that program offered to be a possibility that I can you know shorten that by a year and a half and get to study in in a new country so so that's what I've done so I finished my apprenticeship in Germany and then I packed up my stuff applied for for that college got accepted and then moved to the UK yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's a great, is that, is that something which in Germany is uh, a very common thing to, to, as you say, kind of that hybrid approach? Because uh, obviously compared to England, where that's very unusual, it's very much a case of you go to uni or you go and get a job. So is that something which is quite regular to happen um, in Germany? It is very regular. Yeah. So any, any type of job, whether it's hairdresser, butcher, um, baker, you have to have an apprenticeship in order to be able to work in that job. You can't just drop out of school and then get a job. I mean, it's it's very, very uncommon. Most people actually end up doing either an apprenticeship or they study or they do a combination of both. That's really common. So uh, just so I'm, I'm gauging the timeline, so you're kind of in your uh, late teenage years, so around 20 years of age, and you're kind of bobbing to and throw from Germany to England. You're you're kind of already living, as you say, your adult life compared to, say, um, if somebody goes to university in the UK, they're 21, 22 years of age before they kind of even are looking at uh, a job or a career path. In my case, I started working when I was 13. So in, in, in Germany, it's also pretty common that when you're, when you're from the age of 13, you're allowed to work in your uh, summer breaks. So when I was 13, I was working actually in uh, supermarket stores and uh, filling shelves in the morning and doing inventory stock control. And that's the sort of first work exposure I had when I was 13. And when I was 16, I actually left home and moved from my tiny, tiny town of 18,000 people to, to Munich um, uh, to do my apprenticeship. So, so I was independent, living by myself, paying my own rent uh, when I was 16. So I was already quite independent mm, wow. from that age onwards. Um, so then by the time I moved then to the UK, I, I lived by myself for three years in Germany. And then and then I moved to the UK. And yeah, so, so maybe a little bit sooner than the sort of average person in, in the UK. So I guess your, your parents um, still in Germany then at the time, um, and you were saying to your parents, you're like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm going to just move to the UK. That's what I want. I love it over there. Um, I've had a great experience so far. Um, and there's a job for me there. Um, what do they think about that? <laughs> yeah, so I actually, um, so it's, it's just my mom I grew up with um, and, and my grandparents. So, so actually, at the time, I, I had a... There's a thing in Germany that if you are part of the trade union, you have a job for life, um, so they can't actually fire you. And, and I was part of the union because I, I really, I really like what I was standing for. And, and then that meant that I had to get a permanent job where you can't get fired. Um, and despite that, I, I basically, you know, <clears throat> called my family and, and told them, look, I. I, I know I have that great job for life and uh, have a great career ahead of me, but actually I decided to quit my job, pack my stuff, scrape together all the savings I have and, and move to the UK. Uh, the response of my grandma was that she hung up on me and actually oh, wow. didn't talk to me for six months, so that didn't go 
done too well. Um, my my mom wasn't too impressed either, but at least still continued to talk to me. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't something which wasn't very common, and they were extremely nervous. And why am I doing this? And um, when when I have such a great opportunity, where I have a job for life, because having a job for life is still pretty common in Germany. So that. I know a lot of even my friends who are in the same job for 20, 30 years, um, which is a bit more unthinkable in the UK, but actually in Germany it's really, really common. And I had sort of that career path laid out in front of me and I said, yeah, that's great, but no, thank you. I want to I wanna take the risk and try something completely different. You moved to the UK. Um, you start working for Continental. Um, exactly. And, and you work there for um, over a year and then you go back to university. Yeah, so I actually I, I was always working full-time and studying part-time. So the higher national diploma was actually meant to be full-time. But one of the things which is also an interesting observation is that in the UK, um, studying full-time means you're at uni maybe a day and a half and the rest of the time you study yourself. So I'm like, oh, you know, there's actually, I can actually make some money in that time. So I always worked full-time and sort of studied um, part-time. And and then I was doing my bachelor degree, I, I also worked full-time and, and studied then in the evening um, to do my, my master, my bachelor degree and then later on my master degree. And and yeah, and then I started my, my career in uh, supply chain. So I... I initially, as you mentioned, I initially worked for Continental Tires um, and was responsible for planning and forecasting industrial tires. These are the fun parts of tires because tires are not that exciting. <laughs> industrial tires are because it's like the little trolley tires or the big uh, truck tires. So, so I was on the fun part of tires as, as much as fun, as fun goes, really. And then from there, I moved to a company called NEC. It's it's not NEC in Birmingham, which most people confuse. It's actually NEC, the technology company uh, from Japan. And and there I was responsible for for managing um, links, basically network links to uh, send and receive uh, signals. So also not that exciting, but uh, very high high quality, high volume um, commodities. And then and then I actually, I, I had a little bit of a burnout because having worked for that company, working for a Japanese company is an interesting experience in itself. Uh, it's a very interesting culture. And that, that ends up being, you're mostly working extremely hard. And, and I did that as, as well as studying part-time and doing my degree. So by the time I, I've done that, I had an absolute burnout. So I thought, okay, I need a break. I never had a proper break. And one of the things which I really love about the UK is um, how much people are doing a gap year. So a gap year is, is now becoming more common in Germany. It wasn't at the time. Like a, like a gap year, the idea of a gap year, people were like, are you crazy? You're, you're having a break in your career. You have a year where you do nothing. But obviously in the UK, it's it's actually encouraged, right? Because you, you get a lot of experiences. So I actually, I thought, like, okay, right. Now is the time I need a break. I need a proper, proper break. So I actually decided to not do anything for six months and travel world. And that was amazing. So I traveled to Africa, Asia, Australia, 
and and then I came back. I actually then moved back to Germany, and and got a got a job then with Sony Ericsson in Munich, and so the mobile phone company, which doesn't exist mm. quite that same way anymore. Yeah, quite. Um, and and there I only were, I started working for them, and after after sort of about a year and a half, they they asked me there was um, in the UK there were. I think three women simultaneously pregnant, and and then my my manager asked me like, oh, you know, they you know that both three women in the UK are pregnant, um, and we need a cover. What do you want to be the cover? And I'm like, sure, you know, any opportunity to go back to London, absolutely, I take it. So, so they sent me off, and I and I covered uh, maternity leave for those women in in the UK, and that's what got me back back to the UK. So I was on a secondment. It was meant to be ten months initially, but then some of those women didn't come back. So I, it got extended and extended and extended, and then it turned from a ten-month contract to eighteen months. And then within those eighteen months, I I met my husband, my now husband, and um, never returned to to Germany. Awesome. So your ten months secondment turned into over ten years. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it turned into over 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, so how old were you when you went traveling, um, sort of t- took some time out? And as you say, like, as it happens to many people, that recognizing the burnout is one of the hardest things sometimes. So you recognized the burnout and you just went, got a bit of money stored away. I want to see more of the world. You traveled by the sounds of it, so amazing places. Um, how, how old were you at that point? Uh, at that point, I was 23. So you're in your early 20s, you're 23 years of age, and just hop on a plane to Africa. What, what was that like? Oh, it was, it was super exciting. I mean, again, uh, by that time, my, my grandma got a little bit used to the fact that I would, you know, do something like that. So she 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 didn't hang up on me this time around. She actually said, like, that's great, go and have fun and stay in touch once in a while. <laughs> Um, it's actually funny when you think about it because now it's really hard to imagine but when I went to Africa um, I had to switch on the, the computer but there were no laptops at the time so I had to switch on the computer wait for 20 minutes for the dial-up uh, sound to mm, kick of in course. And, and then I had like 10 minutes to quickly send type an email send an email before the signal would went, go down again so so it's, it's, it's actually amazing when you think about that at the time I, I had no mobile phone or no really real way to, to stay in touch with people. But I absolutely loved it. I mean, Africa is, um, is my big passion. I love that continent. I, was, I love the diversity of, uh, of the people, of the culture, of the landscape, you know, all those different amazing types of animals. It's, it's just an incredible country. So I absolutely loved that time. And it, it's interesting because I I did go with the um, with the goal that I'm gonna just you know go for six months and I'm really gonna figure out what I wanna do in life and what's my purpose in life and and you know where does my next sort of career move will take me and reality is I did none of that I just had loads of fun I met loads of amazing <laughs> people. <laughs> 
I think a lot of people, especially in the UK, as you said, that kind of difference in cultures, they when they go on their gap years, whether they go skiing, they go traveling, maybe they just simply just take some time off from education. Um, they That's when a lot of people can say they really grow up. That's when they develop as a person, they mature, um, etc. But by that point, you were already very kind of mature beyond your years. You, you would, you'd moved home, you'd moved home more than once, you were paying rent for years and uh, since you were sort of 18. Um, outside of having fun, did you feel your character develop during that time? Oh, no, absolutely. I think, I think, I mean, you, you always develop no matter what you do. And, and one of the things which I actually really struggled with is, is being by myself and just do nothing. I'm not very good at doing, I'm still not very good at doing nothing. Um, but I actually forced myself to do nothing. So I went to, to stay in a Buddhist monk, um, Buddhist uh, temple for with monks for a few days. And, and basically you only had the opportunity to talk once a day for half an hour and that was it. And I tell you what, James, wow. I, was, um, I was too young. I, I, I did not enjoy that journey. Um, I, I, I think I need to do it again at some point. But it, it taught me so many lessons, you know, like uh, staying with those monks and, and learning their lifestyle and being exposed to that. Like that always sits with me forever. It's not the life I could live, but it was definitely uh, an eye-opening experience for sure. So I think that was one, and the other one was, uh, you know, just having gratitude and uh, being thankful for what you've got. And I will never forget, I, I was volunteering in, in that city in, in Africa, in East Africa, actually in South Africa and East London. And, and I was volunteering uh, for, for like a camp for children who lost their, their parents due to AIDS. And and every time I would go there, most children, they were always extremely happy that you made the time for them and that you spend a bit of time with them. And, and I remember I had a, you know, one of those really early digital cameras, which, you know, now your mobile phone takes better pictures than the camera at the time. And they just had so much fun, like just taking pictures of themselves. And it, it was just so amazing to see that, you know, those smiles. Um, to see you just just because you were there and just because you made a bit of time and you hung out with them. And and that was, you know, that was another woman where I realized, you know, like it's it's so important that you're grateful for what you've got all the time because there's always somebody who is worse off. But by having realized, having been in, in South Africa, having been in Namibia, Thailand, you know, I've been to places where you would think people would be unhappy because they have so little, but actually they're, they're the happiest people I met. Um, and, and I think that whole sort of experience really helped me grow. Now in 2007, after her experience traveling, Julia moved back to Germany with Sony Ericsson and before long took the opportunity to move back to London. Fast forward to 2011 and Julia was made redundant on a Friday, only to join BlackBerry just three days later on the Monday. BlackBerry, being a mammoth of the mobile industry at the time, opened up Julia's experience to different leadership styles and cultures. And after one and a half years, she left BlackBerry and joined Intuit. Julia experienced working with a team from all over the world as supply chain lead for Europe and East Africa. And it was great practice for what her life is today. 
But at the time for Julia, it was the values and startup culture that actively encouraged innovation and experimentation that was most important to her. Her three-year stint at Intuit made her laser customer focused and opened her horizons about UK startup businesses. Around this time in 2014, Julia was about to launch Nixon Kicks with her friend and co-founder, Kirsten Robinson. But the story of their friendship and the formation of the business, I will leave to Julia to tell. So by chance, we met at the airport in Nuremberg, both with our pretty big backpacks and suitcases. And we happened to move on the same day to London. And, and that's how we met. We are like, oh, okay, it looks like you're moving and I was moving. And, and that is how we met. We, we, we then ended up uh, doing our bachelor degree together. Um, so we, we've always been friends, but, but then I actually uh, moved moved out of the UK and then traveling into Germany, we, we lost touch a little bit, as you do sometimes, especially when you're early 20s. Um, and, and then when I moved back to London for the second time round, I thought, oh, you know, I, I must reach out to Kirsten and see what she's doing. So I reached, reached out to her again and I'm like, hey, Kirsten, guess what? Moving back to the UK tomorrow, taking the flight from Nuremberg again at 7.30. Um, so maybe we can catch up for coffee next week. And then she responded and she's like, I'm in Germany right now as well. And guess what? I'm also taking that 7.30 flight tomorrow. So basically, no <laughs> I know it's really, really hard to, to believe that, but it, that is actually what happened. So then we never lost touch after that. And then she, she had her career in banking and, and she was flying a career ladder there. But actually, Kirsten always had the drive to do something different. She she always had really weird and wonderful ideas on how to how to pivot into a new career and how to pivot into new things. And and I always loved that because I actually never had that. I, I never had that aspiration to start something on my own or, or do something. But I always admire when other people were doing that. I mean, oh, that's really cool. I, I really admire what they're doing over here. It's not for me, but it's cool that they do that um and and then she always had that drive and like oh cool you know and and all the ideas she had i I, I always said to her and i always try to engage with her and say hey you know why don't you go out and try and sell it you know so it's not just an idea on paper you actually make it real and then that's how it started so she had lots of ideas from you know gluten-free cupcakes to all sorts of um other ideas and then she started making drinks. She made, she actually made those uh, juice shots initially. And I, oh, that's really cool. So how many have you sold? And she's like, oh, not, not, not really. I'm currently just doing product testing with my friends and family. I'm like, well, you know, why don't we go to the market, sell it? Um, and that's how, how it started. But I, I never envisioned that that would turn into something big. But, but one thing which um, we always had conversations about was, you know, if, I think if you want to do a business, you probably want to, you know, do it full time eventually, because I think it's, it's really hard juggling a full time job and, and running a business on the side. So, so eventually she had, you know, she had that encouragement and uh, was brave enough to say, okay, right. I'm, I'm handing in my notice I'm doing it. And I'm like, good for you. That's awesome. You, you do that. And at the same time, I actually uh, got made redundant again. <laughs> um, so I got made redundant again. And then, and then I, you know, I, I had a new job lined up 
uh, actually with the lottery with Camelot and uh, had pretty much the paper signed already. And then in that moment, Kerstin said to me, like, well, you know, you could obviously join that, that new job and new company where you probably get bored again after 18 months because I get bored really easily. Um, or, or you could maybe, you know, start a business with me. And I'm like, not sure. <laughs> and I actually, I, I had to really think about that. And then I thought about it and then I thought, well, you know, one of the things which is, um, which I guess is true for many people, but I, I am really good at operations and supply chain. I'm, I'm really, really good at that. And when you're really good at something, you always get promoted in the field that you are really good at, right? But I, I've been doing supply chain by that time for like nearly 15 years. And um, I was getting to the stage where I'm like, it's really time for something new. And my, the options I sort of waited up was, you know, I have joined that new new company where, you know, I do my bit and then get bored again after 18 months, or maybe I should do an MBA, but actually I really don't enjoy studying. I've done it, but I don't enjoy it. Um, or, you know, start a business with my, with my friend, which means high risk, potentially losing loads of money, but learning lots of skills. So these are the three options I sort of identified. And then what I've done is I, I've done um, uh, testing, right? So I've, I've done a bit of research and I, I went to my friends in the States, my friends in the UK and my friends in Germany. And I, and I basically presented them with those three options and I asked, you know, my circle of trust at the time and I'm like, what would you do? And what was really interesting, I mean, what, what do you think how the Germans re responded to that? Yeah, probably not that excited about it. <laughs> probably not, no. It was really, really fascinating. So my friends in Germany, they all said, take the job and start it on the side and then see what it does. One job for life mentality. Exactly. So my, my friends in the UK were like, yeah, you know, just maybe try and balance risk a little bit more. Maybe you can, you know find another thing you do just to get by while you're building it up. And my friends in the States were all like, go for it, go for it. So cool, go for it. <laughs> um, so, so yes, yeah, so obviously I had to, you know, I had a really frank conversation with my husband as well at the time. And I'm like, look, here are the options. Uh, one option is to potentially lose, lose a lot of my savings, but have a lot of fun um, versus earning shitloads of cash for being unhappy after 18 months. And, and obviously he gave the right answer and he said, whatever makes you happy, I support you. So, <laughs> so yeah, with that, I, I'm like, okay, great. Let's, yeah. let's do it. Amazing. I mean, that's, I can't believe that you had two complete by chance meetings with Kirsten. And then next thing you know, you're starting a business together. But the, what shocks me the most is that how did you know what you were doing? You came from a supply chain background Kirsten was financial background. She worked for HSBC. And then next thing you know, it's 2014 and you're running a food and beverage business together. How on <laughs> earth did that happen? Yeah, how did that happen? Uh, I still wonder sometimes. I actually, um, I think what, what Kirsten and I both love and we always did, we always love, we, we, we both we, we're both pescatarians and we, we don't eat meat. I haven't eaten meat since the age of 13. Um, so I, I'm gluten intolerant as well. So I, so food and drink is something which we we always enjoyed, and we always look for new 
ideas. Whenever there was a new restaurant, I remember the shoe mountain and we're like, oh, cool, that looks cool, we need to go. Um, so we always loved really good food and drink. And, and obviously, when we were younger, we were going out and we had booze all the time, right? But as we were getting older, even, sometimes we, we were like, oh, actually, I don't want to drink today. And she would be the same. But then there's only so much cranberry juice you can drink without vodka in it. And, you know, I don't, I don't, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't like drinking tonic water without a gin in it either. And, you know, soda and lime is just not very exciting. And, and actually in Germany, when you, when you say to your friends, let's, let's catch up, let's meet up, the expectation is never that you drink alcohol. It just isn't, you know, it's totally normal that you would sit there with just a spritzer or like a fruit spritzer or a coffee or maybe even a tea, you know, and there isn't that sort of social pressure you have in the UK a lot where we, meeting after work means you, you meet for an alcoholic beverage. Mm, you're going to the pub, right? Exactly, you're going to the pub. And and that is the bit where we, you know, Cass and I would then end up having a white wine spritzer um, because, you know, it's fermented grape juice and then you add a bit of sparkling water, so it's nice and light to, to drink. Uh, I don't, I know I'm from Germany, but I don't like beer, so only at the <laughs> Oktoberfest. So, so yeah, so we, we ended up having having them and then we're like, oh, well, we really need to, there needs to be something better. And we just couldn't find anything which we would enjoy, which wasn't, you know, full of sugar, full of artificial ingredients. We just didn't find it. And we thought, well, maybe, maybe we just need to solve our own problem. And maybe there are more people who have that problem. But the, the inspiration and the motivation was really to solve a problem for us. And, and, that is what we've done. And we had, like I said, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. Hmm. So interesting. So you both are trying to solve your own problem, which is a very common uh, kind of thing to come across when you're an entrepreneur. And it's, it's often founded among a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, this story. So you have a problem, you want to solve it. But the issue you've then got is that it's a product-based business, which needs a bit of research, it needs bottles it needs um, ingredient hunting how can you do that without a substantial amount of cash did you self-fund it to start with or did you straight away just identify that you were going to re require some sort of outside investment yeah no so we, we did self-fund it at the beginning so we both put quite a, quite a substantial amount of cash into it and, and I think, you know, for so many learnings, I mean, we, we made so many mistakes at the beginning. At the beginning, we were making the drinks in Kerstin's kitchen. And then we were going out around, around East London trying to sell them. And, and then we actually migrated to the salad kitchen in East London and a bit used their space to then, I say scale it up, but when I say scaling up means, you know, that you could scale up to like selling 50, 60 units a week. It wasn't really scaling up um, because we had also no shelf life. So, so we, we learned as we were going along because we're like, okay, so in order to really scale it up, we need to make it shelf stable. How do you do that? We pasteurize. We can't really pasteurize just at the back of a small salad kitchen in East London. So we need to find a manufacturer. And that is how we then started to sort of grow up. So we, we took our very first money, invested that in, in a smaller manufacturer to get our first batch done, which we then actually can sell. And we sold our first batch at the London Coffee Festival. 
and we sold oh, out awesome. within two days and we're like oh wow okay so people really really like it right because it's always easy to um to do something and ask your friends what they think right and as and especially that was probably the biggest learning for me having lived in the uk for quite some time i'm still learning you know and the bit which we didn't understand initially when when customers gave us feedback about the fact that they found it interesting and we, we were really excited when people said that initially we're like oh my god they're all finding it very interesting uh, obviously now we know that is not a good thing when people say it's interesting <laughs> but at the time we were very encouraged by it <laughs> yeah that that when, when english people go mm, yeah interesting with a little shake of their head what they're actually saying is i have no idea what to say about this and be nice exactly and that's the other bit english people are super nice you know they are super nice super encouraging so Cass and I, we would be standing in market selling soft drinks in winter in a really cold market stall. And then people would sometimes, just because they're empathetic, they would then buy it, even though they didn't even like it, you know, but just because we want to like, encourage you to keep going. So yeah, so we, we've done that. And then we really quickly realized like, okay, we need, we really need to grow up. And, and for us, it was always building a business at scale. For us, it was always, we, we didn't want to just be, um, you know, like a lifestyle business who sells a couple of things in market stores. For us, it was always, no, we want to scale that up because we were so motivated by the fact that we think there are more people like us who want to drink something which is a little bit better for you than the usual average soft drink. And, and yeah, so then we, from there, we, we had our sort of first fundraise and um, we're now onto our... I don't know, fifth fundraise, we're actually crowdfunding very soon. So, so yeah, so we, we had uh, quite a long learning curve from the, from the initial moment where we were making drinks in at the back of the salad kitchen in East London to now we have proper manufacturers in, in Europe and here. Yeah, incredible. So when you first create that first batch, I mean, today, Nixon Kicks is all natural, low in calories, it's vegan. Um, offering a range of flavors. Did you both just look at each other and go, that's it? We want all of those list of things and that's what we're going to go after. What was that initial objective? What, 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 what was it that you were trying to create? So for us from day one, it was always about, we, we experimented a lot, James. We experimented with lots of different types of sugars, sweeteners, um, all sorts of ingredients. Uh, we've been doing, we've been, I think, four, four or five weeks of doing it. We both had problems with our teeth. We had pain from from our teeth from experimenting no with, with lots of different sugars. And we're like, shit, like that's a bad idea because we don't want our, you know, we, we don't want that our own teeth fall out just because we're building a soft drinks business. I mean, that's not good. Um, so then we really looked into the science, you know, we looked into the science of of refined sugars and, and what type of sugar is good for you, what type of sugar is bad for you, um, you know, what what makes, what generated that pain we were both experiencing. And we're like, right. I mean, you know, if we want to build a soft drinks business, we need to be able to drink that for a very long time, you know, hopefully for the rest of our life without gaining shitloads of weight just because we're doing it, without having our own teeth falling out. So that was really the motivation. They got, the motivation was, you know, create something which 
we actually can still enjoy years and years on without having to feel bad about it. And and that is that is how we defined, you know, what the objective for the, for the product is, which was always, you know, nix in German means nothing. And that's because we don't use any any refined sugars. We wouldn't use anything artificial. We wouldn't use any sort of ingredients which do harm to you. And and then obviously when you when you strip all of that out, you know, you're you're left with a really bland, boring sounding drink. And that is obviously why we said, okay, we need to spice it up. We've done a lot of research on how to do that. In the States actually they people are very used to using ginger and and cayenne in drinks and obviously over here they, they burned but then cayenne or, or chili itself when you think about it you know 20 years ago popcorn was just popcorn and now you have popcorn with black peppercorn and popcorn with chili um so chili or spice made it made its way into you know areas which you could have never envisioned 20 years ago and we thought like well why not drink right and that is that is what we've done. And when we looked into the benefits of cayenne and uh, actually the benefits of capsaicin, capsaicin is actually a really, really good element, which is in all the peppers and all the chilies. And that's what really helps you um, boost your metabolism. It helps you um, burn fat. It's, it's an endorphin releaser. So we thought like, oh, it's actually a really great ingredient. You know, it's actually really good for you. And actually a lot of our customers, they, they do swap you know, a drink with caffeine in the afternoon for our drink because they feel alert and that alertness comes from the secondary ingredient we have. And and that was the motivation. We just were like, oh, you know, like that, that sounds good. We both worked in corporate offices and we knew that, you know, when, when people are getting to that afternoon slump at three o'clock in the afternoon, what do people do? They, they, they go, they buy a smoothie or they go and buy... You know, they buy a smoothie if they want to be healthier, or they buy a diet coke, or they buy, you know, a chocolate bar. And then what what usually happens is that sugar spike, right? It's a it's a physical sugar spike you experience. So you're hyper for like half an hour, maybe an hour, and then you get really tired. And and we thought that is what we want to solve. We want to give people the opportunity to have a treat in the afternoon. You know, when they fancy something refreshing and a bit different, but without having all those other negative side effects. And and that is that is still the motivation today. Like that has not changed. Yeah, incredible. So I've I, I looking through your flavors of, of of your drinks. You have sparkling mango ginger, sparkling blood orange turmeric, uh, watermelon hibiscus. You got a range of flavors. A few more in there as well. Um, and they're all sort of based upon a what we you'd call a generic flavor: a mango, an orange, a watermelon, and then followed up with. Well, a lot of people, I'm sure, still today go, why is that in my drink? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, you know, that's, that's a bit that you have to be really, that you have to really learn when you're an entrepreneur and you have to learn how to be super resilient because the amount of people who said to us at the beginning, like, I put cayenne in it, just leave it, you know, your drink would be so much better if you don't put it in. And or we have people who say, oh, for me, it's not spicy enough. Or for the other person, they say, Oh, it's too spicy. You know, you'd actually be surprised. Like we still have people who say it's too spicy. It's it's one of the biggest learnings I had. You can't please everyone. Each palate is different. So what what you might like from a flavor profile, you know, your brother might not like, or your dad might not like, and you're one family, 
right? And that's because your palate develops independently and it's, it's really original on how you taste and experience things. And, and for us, we've been confronted with that so many times, but if we were to strip out the cayenne, the sing element, which we're really proud of, the, the product wouldn't, would, it would just be a bit boring, you know? It would be, it would be missing an experience which you don't get from another drink. And, and that is not for everyone, you know? I wouldn't say we're the Marmite of the soft drinks category. I think we're, we're not as dividing, but we are a bit divisive. And I'm, I'm much rather be famous for, for something which is a bit more divisive than something which is just um, another elderflower drink. I mean, looking through your flavors, I, 45 calories, no added sugars. They're, they're healthy drinks, but potentially if you blind tested the consumer because it's sparkling and especially in the UK, we, we associate that bubbly um, kind of taste of a soft drink as a unhealthy option, the Coca-Colas of this world, etc. Um, is that something that you've, you've faced if, when you've done that sort of consumer testing? Yeah, it's actually, it's a really good point. So what we've done is at the beginning of last year, Cass and I, we actually, we've done what's called an organoleptic testing, which is basically it's blind testing. So what we've done is we, we were standing outside a couple of our customers uh, in London and in Dublin, and then we gave the drinks to, to the consumers who normally shop in those uh, establishments. And we asked them to try it and describe it back to us. And what was fascinating is that um, the way they described it, so the words they were using is that it's very, very clean tasting, it's very refreshing, always came out. And then they, they always said, oh, and there's that little zing to it. And, and that zing came up over and over and over again. So people described our product as with a little zing in the end. And that's, a, that's such a nice description. And then we showed them actually our packaging before, like we, we only finished our rebrand in, in autumn actually last year. So then we showed them the previous packaging and, and then we asked them, would you have expected that the packaging looks like that? And they said, no. They said, I like the packaging, but the packaging doesn't talk to the liquid inside. And for us, that was such an eye-opener and that was such a big learning. So with that, that is how we now re redesigned the packaging. And now the packaging really speaks to the content of the of the liquid and and now you know our consumers were all like yeah they were also nervous because everybody loved our previous packaging it was really cool you know it was really funky and but and we had a lot of customers who said like oh no please don't rebrand your branding was really cool but now with our new branding we get really really strong feedback and now the brand is matching the content so i think it, it took us a few years but now it's really in balance with what it actually is Mm, awesome. Five, five, six, seven years on, doesn't matter how many years on from starting your business, you're always still going to learn. That's the entrepreneurial life, right? Exactly. Yeah, looking through your products, I think I would be going for the sparkling blood orange turmeric. I think that's the one I would try if I was in a, if I was in a shop right now and your products were displayed out in front of me. I think that's the one I'd go for. Uh, do, you, do you have a favorite, a favorite flavor? Yeah, for me, for me, it varies a little bit with the season. So in summer, I like the more summery, lighter drinks, but like the cucumber is really, really nice. And the watermelon, hibiscus, raspberry rhubarb are really, really refreshing and very, really easy to drink. 
And then when I when I move into autumn and winter, that is when I like the mango ginger, the blood and turmeric, because they're they're refreshing but warming at the same time because of the ginger and the turmeric. And we actually we use really really good turmeric, so it's a really uh, it's 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 a really nice earthy taste, and that pairs super super well with refreshing blood orange. So yeah, it's a great combination. Mm, awesome, great answer. I feel like you may have. Uh... I'll answer that one before because you mentioned all the flavors there. It was very impressive. Um, so one thing I've not asked yet, um, or actually I've not been able to work out yet. I've I've got I've got it written out in front of me. And I can't work it out. Nicks and kicks. I feel like it's a play on your names, but I might be wrong. Where did the name come from? Yeah, it's actually. I think you know, for every person who would have uh, asked us that, I think we should have just changed our names accordingly because it's always. It's always the hypothesis from most people that it's something to do with our name. It has actually absolutely nothing to do with our name. So Nix in German means nothing. And and that, how that came about was because we were, you know, quite hot on the fact that we want to use Cayenne as part of our range consistently. So I think the key is always like, you know, what, what are your sort of core values and how do you design your product? And for us, the design element of the product was always to use a bit of cayenne in everything we do. So once we settled on that, we knew that we wanted something with kicks. We want to make it lively, we want, want to make it fun. Um, but actually, what, when, we, when we looked for a name, it was so difficult, so, so difficult. And we had so many conversations in German, and we were like, oh, you know, just nothing comes to mind. It just basically nicks comes to mind. And like yeah, Nix and cakes and Nix and Nix and oh, Nix and cakes. Nix and cakes sounds good. Nix and cakes, I like Nix and cakes. And then we uh, we've done a lot of testing, so we were in a co-working space at the time, and that co-working space had I think thirty different nationalities. So then we showed it to every single different nationality, and we asked them, "Does that mean something bad in your language?" Because you know, we from the outset we wanted to build something which has global scale or global potential. And the last thing we want to do is have a name, which means, I don't know, shit in another country. So we we asked them, we all said, no, it doesn't mean anything bad. And actually it means nothing. And you know, you can go for it. And actually it sounds good. And then that, that is how the name got developed. Because when you think, when you think about the name, that is literally how we design our product. So we always design a product with nothing, which is no sugar, nothing artificial, 100% vegan, and then always with a bit of zinc, which is the kickspot. Awesome. Love it. Um, fantastic explanation. So earlier we touched upon um, your family and the, the, the sort of um, pressures that, that they uh, put on you when you were making different challenges and you, you kind of went your own way. So by this point, you're proven that a lot of your decisions have gone well, even if there's been ups and downs along the way. But in 2014, you're at a point where you've got a successful career and you give your mum a call and you go, I'm leaving my safe job and I'm going to start my own business. How did that go? Yes, I think by that time, they were so used to me doing things which are not quite the norm. They were like, okay, 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 yeah yeah you do that <laughs> and and um and, and and just make sure that you know that that you're happy 
So by that time, they, they now came around that, you know, most important thing in life is that you have fun and, and you're happy. And, and they, so, so they probably had all sorts of doubts and, and thoughts when I said that. A hundred percent. They were probably like, oh my God, what is she doing now? And, and even today, even today, when I meet friends I grew up with and I haven't seen in a long time. And, you know, when you have that awkward moment when you meet people from your school and they all follow a standard sort of path and they, you know, they have a job and they build a house and they have two children and, and I don't know, like the sort of standard thing they do, right? But is what is meant to be the right sort of life you should be living. And then it comes to me and I'm like, you know, what about you? You know, how many cats have you got? And like, I have five and they're called raspberry rhubarb, mango ginger, cucumber mint, um, and, uh, and so on. And, and, and you know, I, I co-run a, a soft drinks business. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And what do you do for work? I think that is what I do for work. You know, they're still like it's it's really hard for them to comprehend. Um, they still can't get their head around it. That 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 is what you do for a living. Um, but that my family they do and they actually they're loving it and and they are, you know, promoting it heavily and and they, they just can't wait for a moment where they can actually walk into a store in our tiny, tiny town and and buy it. Like, I think that would be the, the greatest moment for them. So they are, they're, they're now just ex- extremely proud and they're really happy and they follow our story. I think my grandma is my biggest fan on Facebook. She comments and likes every single thing we post. So, so yeah, no, they're really happy. Yeah, awesome. Great to hear. Um, so in those first few years, the, the two of you, yourself and Kirsten, you, you've decided that you're going to put a big amount of money, your own self funded venture which is always terrifying um when you start what were those kind of early say one or two years like what, what were the biggest challenges that you overcame oh my god like the first two years were shit <laughs> like it was so incredibly hard because um like you just recognized like trying to sell a drink with chili in it oh my god like and, and at the beginning so how we separate the jobs i guess it looks after finance and marketing and I look after sales and operations and and I was doing field sales, you know, I was trying, I was the one who was like walking through the city of London, knocking on doors and the amount of time that people had exactly that reaction is like, why would I want to drink something chili in it, you know, and the amount of times I, people would say no to me, it's heartbreaking, you know, and, and like at the beginning we had glass bottles, so I was walking around my husband is still, you know, sometimes saying to me, like, if you ever do another business, please do software because, you know, we had our kitchen at some point was just full of boxes. I was doing the deliveries. My, my, my kitchen in my first two years was the warehouse. That is where we stored the product. And then I would jump on the bus and deliver them by hand to Brixton. Um, and then later we, we use Uber, but it was still like our kitchen was our warehouse. And you can imagine my, my husband wasn't very, very pleased uh, by seeing cardboard every single day when he, <coughs> every single day when he walked into the kitchen. And, and yeah, so, so, you know, that was just hard. It was hard physically. It was hard um, getting 
told no so many times and and gosh yeah i mean it was we had many breaking moments where it was just like gosh do i really want to do this but but then we um you know we had always encouragement we always have like people who really believed in us who were in the industry and said like no you're onto something keep going and for us that was actually somebody from tesco um who always was you know a big fan of ours and he always said like no keep going keep going i think you're onto something we then fairly quickly got a listed in selfridges and selfridges is obviously a really nice account and sort of a stamp of wow approval. yeah great account to be in and then and i think the other encouragement was for me was just all those amazing coffee shops like the the london coffee shop scene is just incredible and obviously all of those uh people most of them were, were entrepreneurs they're starting their own business and there's that real sense of community and giving startups like us a chance and and i think that is what motivated me there's not there's still for me there's nothing more satisfying than being out in the field and introducing people <clears throat> introducing the people to the brand for the first time and then getting them to buy it you know that sensation for me is still the best sensation on the planet and and that was just you know yes it meant that i have to maybe get like sometimes 15 no's in a day but it's those two yeses which made my day and and yeah so that was that was the journey so it was long hard painful physically exhausting that i learned tons from it you know it was such a great learning group can you remember those uh, kind of growth numbers for those early years were you growing or were you struggling how how did those early say two or three years uh, go in terms of getting the Nixon Kicks brand out there? Yeah, so I mean, like in the first sort of two years, like I said, we were mostly focusing on a smaller independent account. And once I realized that London coffee shops are great and they, they're happy to stock you, I'm like, great, I'm just going after London coffee shops, right? Because it's, it's an easier sale and people like it, they support you. Um, what I haven't anticipated is that obviously as soon as you turn into autumn people go to a coffee shop because they want a coffee or they want a hot tea or they want a hot chocolate they want hot beverages in autumn they don't want a cold refreshing soft drink in autumn and, yeah, and i lost sure. i lost nearly 50 percent of my customer base uh really quickly and i'm like oh wow there's something i've done wrong um i need to diversify and that was the biggest lesson very early on for me is like, I need customer diversification. I can't just rely on one type of customer because if you do that to, you know, like I lost 50%. I regained probably 25% back in spring again, but I lost 50% pretty much overnight. And, and that, that is when I realized, okay, we need to have a multi-channel strategy to make the business super, super stable and future-proof. And, and once I realized that, that is kind of me how, how we then set up the business and, and diversified. So we, we then quickly onboarded uh, Ocado and then we, um, we actually ended up in, on the shelves in Waitrose and fairly quickly after in Tesco's. But then, you know, the independence and uh, cash dining accounts were, were still always important. And, and now you can find us in 7,500 different distribution points. 
Um, but that was because, you know, the intention is that we want to have a multi-channel strategy. So once I realized that and I learned from, you know, growing quite well to then losing 50% overnight, we then sort of doubled our growth year on year, apart from last year, because last year, well, we all know what happened last year. So those first couple of years, steep, steep learning curve, as, as you said, lots of kind of literally waking up in the day and finding out that something you've been doing for the last six months probably wasn't the best strategy, something which is never easy to kind of uh, get your head around. So then how, how was the revenues being affected? When, when did you start really starting to gain traction in your revenue channels? And today, how are those revenues looking? Uh, I appreciate the last year kind of aside. Yeah, so, so I mean, like we, um, we really had the step change when we made the decision, and that was a really bold decision. We decided to launch CANS. And that was difficult because, you know, if you work on software, so you can just test an idea, you can have landing pages, and you do A-B testing. You can't quite do that with a physical product where you have a minimum run size of 150,000. Um, so it was a complete leap of faith. We just thought, right, we need to, in order to step change in business, we need to trust that CANS is the right move. So we, off we went, raised some money, put that money into our first sort of production runs for, for 150,000 CANS. And I, and I remember I was going to travel to our site who filled those CANS, and uh, they walked me into the warehouse, and I had those pallets and pallets and pallets of empty Nixon Kicks cans. And... And I remember that feeling that my heart just stopped and I'm like, shit, that's loads to sell. And it's just, I was just completely overwhelmed and like, oh my God, that's a lot of units I need to sell. Um, but, but that was really the step change because there's a lot of accounts. So when you think about, you know, a lot of offices like Google, Twitter, Facebook, uh, you name it, they, they have a no class policy on site. So they wouldn't launch anything. And we were only in class. We, we always said from the get-go, because we are very focused on sustainability, we always said we would never go into plastic. It's just not something we would do. Um, so it was always just glass and cans. And when we were doing the, the cans, you know, with the cans, we went, went to almost different accounts. We're like, hey, look at us, we now have cans. And suddenly the orders just started to roll in. And that was really the turning point for us. And uh, from there onwards, you know, we we grew a business substantially now, and and we now at a at a two point five million retail value in the UK. One thing which has been really uh, touched upon, um, sort of in the media over the last um, six months to 12, 12 months, is that you've been moving into a couple of different international locations, as you said, Switzerland, Germany, Holland, you're in a num number of different places. What would you say is the biggest barrier to your success moving forward? So I think the biggest barrier right now is the external factors. You know, there's a lot of, obviously, uh, I don't want to dwell on it, but Brexit doesn't simplify things, um, makes things extremely hard and more challenging and more expensive. And, and then there are lots of other regulations. So, for example, there's, there's a regulation coming to the UK in a couple of years, uh, the first one next year, uh, which is a deposit return scheme for drinks. And 
and it would be and i'm totally on board with it because obviously in germany um you know all drinks are in a deposit return scheme and it's it's how we grew up like it's it's fine but it's adding complexity because every country has a different scheme in place and therefore you have to have bespoke print runs for every single country and that just adds complexity from an inventory management point of view so i think that is currently the biggest biggest barriers are the external ones you know you have sugar tax which is not consistent across the globe but everybody does it you have various different you know rules and regulations um, on how you need to display labels and what how you need to outline ingredients or packaging so that is what really kills the fun because even though we know that we have product market fit for a lot of countries it's both regulatory um, components which make it quite difficult so we're having this conversation in march uh, 2021 over the past year the world of, has struggled through the covid 19 pandemic uh, affected millions and millions of people's lives how's it affected yours and, and your business yeah i mean it was extremely difficult it was super super difficult so so back in march um we we kept a close eye on developments from from about january so we were watching it really closely and we're like oh that doesn't look good um so by the time you know lockdown happened in march we had already taken taken action uh, with the team we actually put with the team on uh part-time work because we could just anticipate that's going to be big and that's not going to be good for business um and and obviously that was the case so we lost nearly half of our revenue um at some point last year and we had to fight extremely hard so net net year on year we actually were down only a few percentage points but but that was driven because we relentlessly built up new business which is really frustrating because we should have seen a 45% growth if we wouldn't have lost that part of the business, but actually we were net down slightly because of that. And that was really difficult. But as with any crisis, you know, there's a lot of silver lining. So one of the things which we, which we have done is we, we don't have an office anymore and actually everybody is working fully remote and that's an experience in itself. And uh, turns out we, we can run the business successfully remotely. Um, I think what we've done as well, we finally finished the rebrand and that was obviously um, something which we always wanted to do and we finally had the time to really focus and concentrate on that and make, making sure that that goes really, really well and that, and that has definitely paid off because it's super well received. And it also gave us the time to think about our channel strategy because we had to think, think about, you know, predicting the future obviously is extremely difficult. We're getting better at it, but right now it's obviously there are lots of moving parts. So, for example, predicting when hospitality will open again is just difficult, um, and and so we had to find you know other ways to find new avenues of revenue, and and that is what we're now you know refocusing the strategy a little bit and pulling some of the strategic components we had planned for twenty twenty two. We're pulling that into twenty twenty one. So yeah, so after a very difficult year. You know, I'm I'm just really excited about the future. I just really I'm I'm excited about the new branding, and I'm excited about the team. The team has been awesome. You know, they have been really really great and 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 keeping my motivation up despite all the external challenges. We having new team members, which are really cool. So I'm just I'm just really excited about this year. 
exciting times ahead um, for, for all, I hope. And as you say, as hospitality starts to open up again, uh, your aggressive sales strategy hopefully will come to fruition and we'll see plenty of nicks and kicks all over London, all over the UK and, of course, internationally as well. So the last question that I always ask is, do you think business growth is a mindset or something that can be learned along the way? That's a pretty good question. I think it, it, it's a combination of both. I think you need to have that hunger and drive in you. And, and you, you need to love what you're doing. And, and at least for me, I lo- absolutely love what I'm doing. And I, I still get super excited about you know, winning new business or seeing customers consuming the, the drink or when people write to me for the first time. Like I'm, I'm super, super motivated by that. I think learning the skill set on how to grow your business or how to accelerate and, and grow, these are skills you can learn. But what you can't learn is the passion and the motivation. Passion and problem. The two P's behind most entrepreneurs' success or failure. For Julia, that is what her story is all about. The desire to follow her own path and make her own waves before stumbling on her own problems with an unlikely meeting, not once, but twice. Since we spoke, Julia, Kirsten and the Nixon Kicks team have launched in over 40 WH Smiths in train stations and quite fittingly, airports. On top of this, they announced in March this year, 2021, that they have found a distribution partner in the US named Iris Nova, the soft drinks maker and distributor backed by none other than Coca-Cola. Thank you so much for listening to today's show of Growth in Mind. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can get in touch with us about product and marketing services at airbyte.uk. This week's episode was produced by Alexi Buckingham with music by 10 Hands High. I am James Farnfield and you've been listening to Growth in Mind.